So, Austin, this time last year, everyone was saying 2016 was the worst year ever. Was 2017 hey, any man. better? You know what's weird? I actually tweeted this out. Like, I apparently everybody thinks that even 2017 was worse, but, like, everyone was really excited for 2017, right? And then now they're like, fucking, this year was the longest year ever. So I just think that people are negative Nancys. Well, that, that, that could be, but we're not going to be negative Nancys today because it's our year-end top ten. That's right. We're going to talk about good stuff. What do we like? What do you love? What was good about this year? 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Hey, welcome to I Dig This Movie. I'm Keir Sewer, an independent filmmaker and photographer, as well as a guy who got... Another Dallas Cowboys mug for Christmas, bringing my total of Dallas Cowboys mugs to four. And I'm Austin Hayden-Smith, philosopher, actor, writer, producer, etc., etc., etc. And I also saw another Christmas gift on Instagram, I think, that you got that you were very happy about. Was it a, cla- it's a clapper board? A clapper board. It was a clapper board. It was, a yes. clapper board. Yes. Yes, it was, which is one of those presents that's like, I really should have known to ask for myself, <laughs> but didn't. I'm... And luckily, I have a wonderful partner who does realize these things and, and, and gets them for me. I'm just amazed that you have made uh, a feature film, well, potentially two, d- depending on what you consider Jesse Functions, but we'll call it a long-form short. So you've made a feature film, you've made like a dozen short films, maybe more, you've made like a hundred music videos, and you don't ever use a clapperboard. <laughs> well, actually, uh, on the last short, we did have a clapperboard, but it was like one of those... Um, like what are those ones you'd buy at like a Hollywood gift shop or something? You know, <laughs> I think like I think the person I think the person who gave it to me got it from like Tiger. Yeah, oh, it's like Jesus. more like a sort of cute decoration than an actual uh, clapperboard. I, I think so. we made a movie once with a clapperboard, but uh, but generally speaking, that's not your vibe, man. No, no, I don't. I don't, I don't tend to fuck with clapperboards. But now it's all professionalism. That's it's right. All, <laughs> everything's gonna be clapped properly. That's right. Okay, so this week is pretty simple. Os and I are going to roll through our 10 favorite films of the year in reverse, in reverse order. Uh, last year, we literally didn't have a single film in common. So, uh, Austin, do you think that's going to change this year? Uh, I guarantee you we have one. I guarantee you have, we, we have at least three. At least three. Well, this is going to be a much more boring episode to listen to. Everyone got everyone, we got to talk about twenty movies last year. This year, it's going to be uh, it's going to be a little bit more. Muted. I'm going to say I'm going to say th- between three and five, depending okay. on things. Okay. After we reveal our number ones, we will also be doing a special episode, uh, doing an in depth discussion of each of our favorite films of the year. Uh, last year, it was Sing Street and Green Room, two films that couldn't have been more different. So how will it shake out this year? Let's find out. So Austin, when you hit me with your number 10. So my my one through eight, probably at any time of the year, could have been my number one, if that makes sense. That's how close they are, right? But okay. my number nine and my number 10 are a little bit less, and especially my number 10. But the reason I put it there was because it was one of the most beautiful films that I saw of the year. And for me, it was one of the most personal and intimate because of my religious upbringing and its silence. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is and well, do you want to uh, do you want to do you want to say anything about silence? Because it's not on my list. It's not on your list. Interesting. It's um, not on my list. Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, I think the acting performances were stellar. The locations were remarkable. The cinematography was exquisite. I thought the direction was perfect. Um, 
if I was going to criticize it, you know, when we talked about it uh, a little bit on the podcast throughout the year, was just thematically I thought it was interesting, maybe problematic at times. But because it was an exploration of faith and an exploration of sort of religious commitment and piety, and I was training to be a pastor for a while. I have a master's degree in theology and a bachelor's degree in theology. So I have an intimate connection with the exploration of your connection with the divine. So for me, I thought that it was such such a tremendous feat to kind of put on, on screen. Now, it's long as fuck. It's like three hours long. It's not the kind of film that if you didn't get a good night's rest and you're not caffeinated or whatever it is that gets your, your juices flowing, it's not the type of film you want to sit down uh, to kind of to kind of uh, endure, I guess. But at the same time, if you're in the right frame of mind, it really is something that you can. And I used, I guess, this word again on purpose. Now you can endure it, and I really do think it's kind of rewarding, you know. Um, but yeah, I thought Andrew Garfield was amazing. I thought Adam Driver was amazing, and I'm glad to see him bodied up in the the newest Star Wars film because he was looking pretty sickly in Silence. <laughs> Well, see, here's the weird thing, and it's interesting, obviously, bringing out Silence for this, because I thought about putting Silence in my top ten, and it's a little bit of a strange and awkward one, because obviously in the UK, we get film releases so late. So there's quite a few films that came out last year that I thought, that came out technically this year in the UK, but were kind of of kind of the zeitgeist last year. So right. Moonlight, Manchester by the Sea. Right. And I mean, in a sort of weirdly selfish way, I kind of left a lot of those out purely because I wanted to talk about a sort of the more current state uh, slate of films. It's like, I feel like if I'm talking about silence, and this is not, this is not a criticism of you and how you no, put no, your course. list together. I've, I, I decided not to put silence in there purely because I didn't want to talk about films that came out almost a year ago. It's like I wanted to kind of talk about more what the current s- slate of films is. Now, you could say that that's actually a really arbitrary thing and actually technically wrong. But then again, it's my top ten list, so I can kind of do it however the fuck <laughs> I want. Yeah. It does leave me in a very awkward position sometimes because I'm, say, like, with, say, something like, I don't know, Molly's Game, which is coming out on January 1st here. Uh, it means that potentially Molly's Game is something I, I thought could have potentially been in my top ten list, but I'm, you know, I'm going to go see it on New Year's Day. Right? Is it going to be in my top ten next year? I, I I don't know, but it seems unlikely because just the way the release dates work. Yeah, and it's tough too because then you you sort of essentially cut yourself off because you didn't include Manchester by the Sea last year, or you didn't include yeah, right. And so it, it kind because of because I hadn't seen it by the time of exactly the, the list. So it's it's in that in betweener phase, you know. So you get that with uh, with Moonlight, Manchester by the Sea, and Silence. And so there are films that kind of then might get left off of the list that I that I think are deserving. And I will say there is um, I, there maybe two more. Uh, there, no, there's one more film I guess that is going to be in the same sort of category. But then the other eight are more I guess like solidly. Solidly 2017 films. I, I will say, too, that my top – just 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 to throw this out quick, there was a very competitive year in my top ten. Like there were quite a few films that I really wanted to try and include that I couldn't include. So I'm going to have a few honorable mentions once we get to the end. But okay. I do think – I think it's interesting because me and Bradley often disagree with this on how top ten lists should be put together because he's very – 
straightforward in it. He goes, nope, it's what I saw from January 1st to uh, December 31st. You know, right. and I, I, I respect that level of logic and simplicity. However, there is something that I do, I do feel like if I put silence on this, it, it somehow doesn't feel like a proper representation of 2017. Mm. Yeah, I can and that's that. just my personal list, not, not yep. anybody else's. I will say I thought Silence was absolutely fantastic, and uh, I think I, I was even more enthusiastic about it than you were when yeah. we talked about it on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, you were. So, yeah. so I'm, I'm going to go with my, my first entry. My number 10 is, a, is the film we talked about on the podcast. It is Brawl in Cell Block 99. Oh, yeah, I remember you talking about that one. Okay. Which is a film by S. Craig... Uh, Zaylor, I don't quite know how, I'm not totally sure how his, his last name is pronounced, okay. but, um, director of Bone Tomahawk. Oh, yeah. Um, and it is a brutal crime film starring Vince Vaughn, um, which is basically uh, about, uh, the depths that, uh, humanity can sink to. Um, hmm. and, and I, I, and I think I, it was a film that fascinated me on a lot of levels because I was really, I was really interested in the kind of no fuss style of it. it. There was a very theatrical element to it in the sense that it was very, very dialogue driven, but mm. also it was so willing to engage with the brutality of violence in this kind of like really blunt fashion. It, the violence was, I suppose you could make a claim that the violence was stylized, but the violence was really harsh. It wasn't, I don't think the, cause I think violence is often, used in a sort of cathartic fashion mm. in film. And I don't think the violence was cathartic here. The violence mm. at all points felt uh, awkward and uncomfortable and really, um, you know, really intense. Um, mm. And I think, I think Vince Vaughn is really good in it. I think it's been a long time since we've really seen Vince Vaughn like act properly. And, uh, and I, I think he's great. And I'm, I'm really fascinated by the fact that uh, the director's next film is um, Vince Vaughn and Mel Gibson in, something about, I think it's like the Russian mafia, which I, you, you, you got to imagine like the, 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 the levels of violence in that film are going to be kind of insane. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I'm glad to see Mel Gibson back doing some, some substantial film work though. It seems like Hollywood has forgiven him for his racist rants. <laughs> it's, it's interesting because with this film too, is I can genuinely say that I saw some things in it that I never thought I would see in a film ever. Um, I didn't know necessarily before I saw them that I had never seen them <laughs> and uh, I'm not totally sure I want to see them again. But it was like it was a film that really stuck with me afterwards. And you mean I, like, again, like I, human centipede style stuff well, that you've never seen? <laughs> well, no, I mean, but you, you know, you know, you know, Bone, you saw Bone Tomahawk. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, there's that bit in the film where it kind of goes from being this fairly straightforward Western to this crazy, violent horror film that's just um, and there's just, uh, you know, there's that moment where, say, the guy gets kind of split down the middle. Yeah. And you're kind of like, holy shit, what the fuck am I watching? That (laughs) is basically almost every 20 to 30 minutes in Cell Block 99. Mm, Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I haven't seen it it yet, but I remember you. You raved about it. Obviously, it made it into your top ten. And how many films did you see total this year? Did you? Um, <coughs> um, I think it would be in, I don't know, somewhere in the nineties. I think that's um, that's down it, quite a bit, isn't it? I don't think so. I mean, it's like, um, I think I've got like about seventy films, a little over seventy films on Letterboxd. Okay. Uh, 
but I think some of those there's also films that, for instance, I watched on on demand services or didn't see in festivals and then only saw later, you know, and right. so there's things that were released this year that I saw. So I think roughly about Bradley's better at keeping track of this than I am. But uh, yeah, I think there was I think he saw about 99 films and he okay. saw more than I did. So it's somewhere between 70 and 90. OK, OK, cool. Um, but um, so awesome. Why don't you hit us with your number nine? All right, so my number nine is a film that I think it, it could, this one could be one of the ones that we cross over on. I'm not sure, but I know you really dug this film. But it's Wind River. Uh huh. Okay. And well, we'll have to find we'll, out. We'll have to see. Um, and I thought that this movie was amazing. And I, I actually rewatched it uh, this week. And we we didn't we didn't talk about this on the podcast because I'd seen it, but you hadn't seen it. Exactly. When we talked about it. Yeah. yeah. Um. But it's on Amazon now. You can uh you can rent it, uh, or I or it was part of my Prime streaming streaming service. I don't remember which, but anyway, I watched it recently this week again, and I was I was uh, all I could think about was is that that uh Taylor Sheridan seems to be the sort of perfect writer of dude cinema. And well, he's, he's almost like he's he's there's a Hemingway esque yeah, element to him. That's this, exactly what I was thinking. In this in this fact that he's also like it's very unfussy and yes. straightforward. It's kind of like it's men have these sort of great monologues in it, but it's not overly flowery. It's yes. kind of like it's and and I think his plots are actually the funny thing is I always think if you write his plots down on paper, they just look like very very generic plots. That you know, but the fact that he. I think it's the characterization that really kind of and it's and it's the treatment of these things because mm. he takes elements that are often kind of trite thrillerish conceits and then ends up kind of imbuing them with a lot of like real world weight. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing, like if you something like Hell or High Water, if you looked at it on paper, you go, That looks like a dumb, trashy thriller, but he imbues it with the real mood and feeling of the economic crisis and mm. what's going on in uh, and and the culture of West Texas and it 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 just that's the thing actually that I think is really interesting I feel like the thing about Taylor Sheridan is the things he writes they feel authentic yeah and with Wind River what he does is he takes a sort of um investigative drama uh, a, a murder mystery and infuses this very interesting exploration of culture and uh, the idea of the sovereign state of of uh, American Indian peoples, and uh, particularly the issue that even gets more narrowed down even further: the idea of missing women um, within the the uh, the reservations. And so it was just a really interesting exploration. the The characters were all um, very well portrayed. Um, the the tension was was really high. Um, he just knows how to write, and he does a very good job, I think, with Elizabeth Olsen as well, her character. But he does a very good job of writing men, and 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 I think that he just he kind of understands dudes. I think a lot of so people, I think a lot of times too, they think that that we see these tough action figures, and we 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 are exposed to these tough stories, and so a lot of times I think the the misconception is that like Hollywood people are tough, right? Like Hollywood actors are like tough dudes. Uh, or that writers are tough, or that directors are tough, but and it, the world takes all types. So I'm not necessarily shitting on them, but I'm I'm kind of just making a sort of observation that really Hollywood creatives are kind of nerdy, 
You know? Oh yeah. They they were the nerdy kind of guys in high school. Um, well, do we do we have to go into Harvey Weinstein? For, you know, yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. And 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 you also get this with American actors, and this is actually a large reason why British and Australian actors um are kind of taking over men anyway, like men actors are taking over a lot of the action roles or these sort of more masculine types of roles, and it's because there seems to be a sort of like like. Uh, almost like a brute masculinity that gets lost in a lot of American creatives and American actors within the Hollywood industry. But Taylor Sheridan, see, he seems to just have like that. He gets it, man. He just kind of gets it. And I don't know if he's that type. I know that he's a he's an avid reader and writer himself, so he obviously has more of an artistic side. But he's also bodied up to fuck, like if you ever saw him in Sons of Anarchy. So I don't yeah. know if he's like a hunter, fisher, like weightlifting, athletic type. I don't know who he is, but he seems to exhibit those characteristics, especially in his writing, very well. So well, and it's interesting too because um, I've been a fan of his writing, obviously, since Sicario. Yeah. So it was interesting to see him jump on board and direct take take the reins and direct something. Because um, yeah. obviously, you know, he had Dennis Villeneuve on the first one. He had David McKenzie um, on Hell or High Water. So it's and I will say that I think the on, the thing that is the weakest element of Wind River is the direction. Whereas I don't think he quite has the same kind of just confident visual um, aesthetic of, say, either David McKenzie or Villeneuve. Um, but you know, I think that can come with time. Yeah. And I think certainly it doesn't hamper the the great writing and the, the really great performances because really Renner is just fantastic. And great. Yeah. Now, I, I mean, yeah, and, he is. And, and, and I think yeah, go ahead. I think the interesting thing, too, is I think people tr- after the Hurt Locker, people tried to make Renner into a traditional leading man. Mm. And I just don't think Renner fits that because he's kind of a weird looking guy as well. Like Renner is a sort of like he's he's an odd one because he's one of those guys who you look at and you're kind of like. He sh- he kind of looks like he might be handsome, but he's kind of also a little bit off looking. Mm. It's just like there's something just a little bit you're not quite sure about. And I think he's but I, I, I genuinely think like he is just absolutely fantastic. I think this is probably his best performance since The Heart Locker. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Now, I don't think this film is as good as Heller Highwater. Um, but again, I don't know if that's necessarily a fair comparison because he's doubling up on roles in this one. But still, it's my number. It's my number nine film. Um, so, uh, for my number nine film, cause I've realized that my, 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 uh, my, my list is masculine as fuck this year. <laughs> so this is kind of pretty much the only non really masculine film that <laughs> I have on here, which, uh, I've only just realized. So it wasn't, this wasn't planned at all, <laughs> but, um, this was a film that I didn't see in the cinema, unfortunately, when it came out, it was out very early this year, um, and uh, I sort of regretted it because I would have loved uh, the price of my ticket to go towards it because um, I feel like this is the sort of British cinema that I think needs to be supported, and that is the film Lady Macbeth. Oh, uh, yeah. Now, I didn't see this, so you loved it. Oh, I, I really loved it. It was one of these ones, too, that was a real pleasant surprise because I watched it thinking, oh, this is kind of just your usual costume drama fair, you know, that people are, you know, going gaga over. I'm sure it'll be handsome and really dull. And this film is, I mean, I I think, like, this film is structured and executed brilliantly. It's 89 minutes, it is lean as fuck, and it is just really, it just moves. It's got a lot of just great pace to it. So it's based off... Uh, Lady Macbeth of the Minsk District, which is a Russian book. Um, and it's basically about a young girl who is married off to a much older man in 
Yorkshire, I believe it is, in, in this movie version, and uh, but who is abusive to her and has very little interest in her. Um, I, you find out later some of the reasons why. And he basically just leaves her in the house. And he's essentially been forced to marry her because her fa- uh, because the his father, her father-in-law, uh, wants heirs. So she's basically been brought in there to create heirs. However, he's really not that interested in mm-hmm. having sex with her. So um, she's kind of just left in this house in the middle of fucking nowhere for ages with these servants and just is leading this very repetitive, boring life, at which point she starts an affair with one of the workers there and uh, proceeds then to start trying to manipulate things to create a more desirable setup for herself. Um, but, uh, and sort of uses the various staff around the house to try and do her bidding for this. It's really, really great. It's a debut film by a guy called William, um, old Royd. Is that how you say it? I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm terrible at fucking last names. <laughs> anyway, he, um, I think, I think it's really impeccably directed. I think, you know, it's made for, um, I think about 500,000 pounds and it is, it's, and it, it, it looks great. Mm. And yeah, I just think, and, and the, the main actress Florence Pugh is absolutely brilliant in it. And I think, I think just generally it's just a really great, great tribute to what you can do on a fairly low budget. Um, but just with really good writing, good performances and a really, really strong structured film. Cool. So my number eight is one of those tweeners that we sort of qualified uh, at the outset here, and it was Manchester by the Sea. Um, obviously, people talked about this film for a very long time with for a couple of different reasons. I mean, obviously, Lonergan was noted, noted for his writing on this, uh, and um, then there was a bit of the controversy dealing with Casey Affleck and the sort of um, sexual misconduct accusations. And then, of course, he won the Oscar at last year's Oscar for Best Actor. Um, and then there's a lot of talk, too, about Michelle Williams and that scene, that scene that um, that I actually tweeted out after I watched the movie. And I said, that scene will change a person. It is just extremely powerful. And then, of course, you know, to the to the supporting actor, the guy that plays Casey Affleck's son. I don't know the actor's name um, off the top of my head, but he's fantastic as well. It, it, just across the board, I thought it was a very well-made film. Obviously, it's not a happy film. It's a very serious film dealing with sort of intense personal loss and tragedy and, and uh, intention and conflict in sort of uh, love relationship in the aftermath of such tragedies. But... It's fucking beautiful, man. It, it is. It is a beautiful movie. I got to imagine that as an actor too, wouldn't like someone like a Kenneth Lonergan script like that? Wouldn't that be like the most exciting thing for like an actor? Because it's very wordy, yeah. lots of emotions. Dialogue, it's just yeah. like it's it's it's. There's so much. There's so much to do in it. I think you're right, man. I think I think you're absolutely right. It's almost like I, I actually heard Tom Hanks say this once on a talk show. He said, um, "Theater is for actors, television is for writers, film is for directors." And of course, he was being hyperbolic, but there's something wonderful about the idea of theater being for actors. And Lonergan's scripts, obviously, he is a playwright as well, um, but his scripts are very actor friendly because of exactly what you just said. And it really gives you an opportunity to really explore a character to to do what it is that you want to do, which is explore yourself and explore a role and 
and be taken on a journey um, through a sort of dramatic narrative that is that is different, that breaks the sort of mundane experience of your life. And and that's what you're able to do. And and this film really, really does that in a way that, like I said, it isn't a happy, uplifting film. But for some reason, at the end of it, even though I was crying like a big fucking mess, it, it somehow invigorates my soul to feel emotion. And this script really fucking hit me in the feels. Well, and, and I think the interesting thing, too, with it is, like, it's once again, I feel like an example of something we talk about, which is that on paper, that film sounds like trite melodrama. <laughs> if you yeah. just if you just explain the plot, like, guy goes back to his hometown because his brother died and he has to look after his nephew, and then there's, like, a whole tragic backstory that's revealed later on, which, again... If somebody just told me that, like that was what their plan for a script was, I would be like, well, that sounds like, fucking oh, dumb. Dire that as sounds, fuck. <laughs> yeah, that sounds awful. But again, it's all in the execution. Right. And it's kind of, you know, that's it. It's it's There's not a dishonest moment in the film. No. And now, was this Lonergan's directorial debut as well? No, 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 no. Lonergan directed um, You Can Count On Me. Okay. Then famously... He had this huge problem with Margaret, which was this film that was originally something like four hours long. He had he went into fights with the studio. At one point, Martin Scorsese came in as a favor to try okay. and recut it. Um, and eventually a version of it was released like four years after it was shot, um, which got sort of rave reviews, but the studio basically tried to bury it. Mm. So Lonergan was kind of seen as unhirable for a while. So there's a bit of a conspiracy theory that originally Matt Damon was slated to direct Manchester by the sea. And now, and then last minute pulled out of it and so and said, oh, well, why don't – because Kenneth wrote it. Why don't you just get him to direct it? And so there's a conspiracy theory that basically Matt Damon never intended to direct Manchester by the Sea and just put his name in there so that he could leave at the last minute and force the studio's hand to try and uh-huh. uh, get Kenneth Lonergan to direct it. But um, – and, and, you know, Matt Damon was in Margaret. I, you know, assume they're probably good friends. He's still a – producer on it yeah well um, he was and Casey he, Affleck stars in it so yeah it's, well it's, Damon was supposed to star in Manchester by the Sea as well and then he couldn't do it because he was filming that the wall movie <laughs> so he had to get paid by the Chinese man <laughs> all right Chinese dude. were giving him that mad yet <laughs> and he had that awesome ponytail that he got to got to rock all right what's your number eight uh, my number eight is a movie that I talked about on the podcast and probably is no surprise it is, again, another low-budget British independent film, which nobody fucking saw. And so, again, it's on Netflix right now. Go fucking watch it. It's called Jawbone. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, I, I think, again, a film that deals with alcoholism in a very honest and unsentimental fashion. Mm. I think, um, I think again, I think this is a film that is owed a lot to the really great acting performances in it. Mm. I think, you know, Johnny Harris, who also wrote the film, is really just impeccable in the lead. And, like, dude had to get in some really good shape because, I mean, you look at him in other films. Like, he was, like, kind of a pudgy dude. And, like, the shape he got into to 
be in this film. I was really surprised at. And then you also have Ray Winstone. You forgetting when if you've forgotten that Ray Winstone could act, you you know you should watch this and remind yourself. Ian McShane comes in and is Ian McShane for a scene, and he's fucking great. You know, Michael Smiley's great in it, and it's like, and it's just this thing of, but, but I mean, really, everything really revolves around Johnny Harris. And the thing that I love about it is, it is a film that it's not Rocky. It's not like the great he's going to win this boxing match and everything is solved in the entire and everything and his life will change forever and everything will be great. It's it's. The stakes of this are so high, but at the same time so low. I mean, because ultimately, what the stakes of this are: does he become a? Does he? Is he going to die from this? um, From from you know from alcoholism, or is he going to find some purpose to keep himself going? Mm. That's that's the stakes of it. So you know the the final boxing match is just for a little bit of petty cash to get Mm. him sort of like out from under it you right. know and and ultimately it's really what the what the real tension is 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 he going to be able to stay on the straight and narrow and so no and i i think i think i think it's it's fantastic again it's really short it's 90 minutes long i think it was made for again something for under a million it is you know really fantastic and should be seen by more people okay yeah it's weird man netflix it oversaturates us with content that sometimes i like even when i see a film that i've heard people talk about on netflix i'll pass over it simply because it's almost like i'm angry with netflix for bombarding my sensory inputs so but i i I will check it out i want to check that one out so so number seven number seven get out I I thought Get Out was fucking fantastic. Um, clever, funny, uh, thought provoking, um, well well crafted. Uh, you know, great directorial debut. Um, powerful message, important cultural phenomenon. I think that just across the board, this is this is what a, a sort of cross genre film can do this is what it can be it can be humorous it can be frightening it can be thought-provoking it can be an element of cultural criticism and so i think that in that sense for me get out across the board was fantastic and then also it was a great introduction to uh american american audience is and i can never remember how to say his last name but daniel daniel kaluuya kaluuya yeah is it kaluuya Um, yeah and and so obviously he's he's known in Britain, but this was a, a nice sort of introduction for someone who I think is um, is very I possibly too, an important star. He was in Sicario. Uh, that's right. He was, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. And he does a perfect American accent, which to me is always oh, so yeah. important. Like I can I can generally tell I can pick out like Australians uh, and and British, which includes Scottish or Welsh or English. Um, oh, Scottish actors are terrible at American yeah, accents. Something... I don't know why it is, but they are kind of across the board bad at it. Yeah, it's something about like the vowel formations and where the placement of things are in the mouth. Um, Australians are a little better. Irish actually I find to be really good at it. But fuck, man. Um, Actually, what, weirdly though, I think there's a lot of similarities between the Irish accent and the American accent I agree, in terms yeah. of a lot of the pronunciation things. It's like if you offhandedly just hear a few phrases from an Irish person, you can think it's American sometimes. It's sometimes. really weird. Yeah. Um, but when you hear the accent, it doesn't sound at all the same. But there's <laughs> definitely certain inflections and things that are so similar that they, I think they're much more easy to go between. 
Yeah, yeah. So, but anyway, Daniel Kaluuya, he fucking perfect American accent, which, so he gets extra points in my book. Allison Williams is an angel slash if you haven't seen the movie, I don't want to ruin it too much, but an angel. Brad, and, Bradley and, Whitford and Catherine Keener and are perfectly him. cast. Bradley Whitford's one of my favorite sort of, I guess we'll call him a complimentary, I don't know, a character actor. He's not really a character actor, but he's just, he's a versatile actor that whenever he's in something, I'm like, oh, okay, he's going to handle the role fine. You know, I, I love think him. the thing that I will say too is Get Out's kind of a weird one for me because I really want to watch it outside of the hype right. because it's like I watched it. I really enjoyed the experience, but I think the weird thing with it is that it's one of those films that, again, I'm I'm not totally sure how much I was engaging on it on its terms. Like, I think it's because I kind of went in not knowing whether it was going to be a comedy, whether it was going to be a horror film. And, you know, ultimately, I think it's a kind of social satire, mm. you know, and but it's like it wasn't scary to me. I found it very funny, but it meant that some of those like points like the TSA guy, hmm. you know, they feel like they're out of a completely different movie than the one than the one that I'm watching with uh, Daniel Kaluuya. And especially you want to fucking talk about jarring humor. People want to talk about jarring humor in fucking The Last Jedi. Get Out's got some really, really jarring humor in there. <laughs> but I will say the thing is I really enjoyed the experience of watching it partially because one of the things that was really fun was I was in an audience that had to be maybe two-thirds black mm. who were just absolutely – like I've almost never been to a screening with that big a sort of excited reaction mm. at, you know, at the film. And it was – so I mean you know, it was a really interesting experience. I want to kind of watch it again in a vacuum. It was – you know, I, I mean, uh, I, I think I think I really wanted to make it part of my top ten, but I started to feel like I was forcing it rather than mm. actually feeling it. You yeah, know? like That's, that white guilt was uh, was coming on you. Where you maybe, felt like, maybe yeah. I don't know, man. I yeah, don't yeah. know, but it's like it's like <laughs> that weird thing, like that I find sometimes with the top ten too, where you start getting into a silly thing. You're like, oh, maybe I should include a documentary. Maybe I should right. include an animated. Film. I mean, you kind of like, is this like? And so this year, I tried as much as I could to just be like, what were the movies that emotionally engaged? Me? Mm, like, what I was like the that. thing that like? And I so I, I feel like kind of like this year is a movie like I feel like you're gonna hear me a lot talk about the level to which I was emotionally engaged in the film Mm. and like I will say like out of out of this at least probably five of them made me like tear up at some point or get a little bit misty eyed like that was so that was what I was kind of looking for so that's why I'm saying like the the top 10 this year was hard it's kind of rarefied Mm. air that a lot of this is rolling in but um, number seven is a film that if you haven't seen, you have no fucking excuse for because it's on <laughs> Netflix right now and it's fucking great. And I don't feel enough people are talking about it. And that movie is Mudbound, which oh, is yeah. you don't think they're talking about it enough. I don't feel like anyone's talking about it enough. Like I think like the problem is I think like I think the problem is that Netflix is in a little bit of a ghetto at the moment where nobody really wants to like like Hollywood does not want to give Netflix Oscars. Um, and I feel, but I, I genuinely think if this film had been released by like a 24 or something like that, people, it would be getting much more positive, Mm. you know, notice than it is at the moment. Um, but I think it's, I think it's really, really fantastic. You know, um, for me, it's got all the trappings of a classic best picture type nominee. Um, and I, and I think like, and I, and I, and that's not why I think it's good. I don't think it's good just purely because of that. But I think I think the performances are again 
really, really fantastic in the way it sets up these this historical dynamic between the white and the black family in Mississippi in the late 30s slash early 40s, the way it deals with PTSD, the way it also deals with the differing experience of black soldiers and white soldiers in World War II. Mm. Um, and I just, I really, I, I, I found this just a really, really, I don't want to say visceral, but it, it, it feels authentic. You know, it feels mm. kind of, you know, it, it feels like it's really reckoning with this idea of America, the American farmland, the American, well, I don't want to say frontier because that makes it sound like I'm talking about the West, but you know, this idea of, you know, the hard living of just having to try and make a living off of the earth. And I think, you know, maybe there's a personal element in this to me because um, I come from a family where, you know, at one point, you know, uh, my great grandparents were, uh, poor German immigrants who, um, didn't own the land that they worked Mm. and, you know, and that kind of life is hard. And that's the life that my grandfather grew up in, you know, and in simple reality is if you were black, that life was a hundred times harder, you Mm. know? So it's, and I, and I think, and I, I think actually the way this film deals with, racism is really, really fascinating because it has different degrees to it. So you see like the old man character, like the father character, who's just like the unapologetic, shitty, horrible racist played by Jonathan Banks from Breaking Bad. Um, And he's just, you know, he's just, he's, he's almost like your stereotype of what you think of like evil Southern racist person is. But then you have Jason Clark, who's not, who probably thinks he's a good person. And you probably thinks he's far more um, open-minded than his father, but is very willing to try and bend the system to suit him. So mm-hmm. he's always willing to put pressure on the black farmers because it suits him that way. Mm-hmm. And he knows yeah. they can't talk back to him. So it's that thing of he's quite happy to pretend like they're friends, but if they talk back to him – that's when you would know – that's when you would see the true racist coming out. And I think there's an, there's an interesting element in the generational ideas, the idea of each generation is trying to get better than the, the previous one. And, and I just think, I just think it's, it's two hours, a little over two hours. It's an incredibly rich film. I've never seen any of other D. Reese's films, but I, I just thought this was really, really fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it's on the list. I'll check it out for sure. I just haven't uh, taken the opportunity yet. Again, I think it's that same thing that I mentioned a minute ago about my my sort of disinclination towards Netflix movies. Yeah, no, fair enough. I I will say I thought I I really sat. This is again a movie that I sat down thinking, okay, this is going to be a bit of a slog for two hours, and then was really, really was was really invested in. I was really into it. Cool. All right, so my number six is a film that made me laugh more than any other movie probably this year, and then at the same time, I was laughing and crying at the exact same time. The Big Sick. Um, I thought that this movie. I mean, to me, this is this is all I need in a movie. Um, this is, and, and I'm gonna sound like I'm being overly exclusionary. 
I don't need the big budget effects. I don't need Star Wars. I would be fine for the rest of my life if I never see an action film at the scale of like a Star Wars. I don't want to say in any action film because I would love to see like John Wick style action films. Those are, those are, those are good for me. But I don't need the big CGI. I don't need the big sort of interstellar ideas, even though I'm all about like dystopian tales and whatnot. But the way that it could be done, I like small scale. I like intimate. I like people that are just dealing with each other and you have a family drama and you have at one point uh when kamal kamal um and uh zoe kazan are kind of having their breakup argument he says like so what you were ugly in high school i'm dealing with like four thousand years of history or something like that there's this cultural depth that you also get in a light-hearted but also serious is it a romantic comedy human drama i think this movie's fucking fantastic and this is the point in my list where literally any of these could be my number one a one b like i love this movie so much ray romano is fantastic holly hunter is amazing she's fucking amazing and then of course zoe kazan um i think is is a star as well so I fucking love this movie. I, I I agree with you. I really loved The Big Sick. I thought, um, in fact, I loved it so much that I was seen in a commercial on TV as one of the <laughs> people being interviewed saying, what did you think of The Big Sick? And, That's uh, right. And unfortunately, they did not use my soundbite. They used Alex's um, soundbite, to which I, th- I believe, what was it? It was something really, she said something like, oh, it was bubbly fun or something like that but it was like it was like literally alex said it and then literally the next moment went please don't use that that's not what i have to can i can i can i can i rephrase that and then literally they use that clip oh no yeah yeah um so no i i thought it was great i really i thought both um holly hunter and ray romano were kind of the standout elements of the film for me. Um, right. I thought, and their relation to him, again, I, I found this kind of really fascinating. But again, I, I also, I found it very interesting to the way that the film dealt with this idea of arranged marriages mm. in the sense that it wasn't purely saying all arranged marriages are bad. It was right. kind of saying people find their own weird ways of, finding the person they're with, they find a situation they're happy with. Sometimes it's not romantic, but sometimes it suits them. And it's Mm. like, and his thing is like arranged marriages just don't work for me. Mm. Like in this sort of setup of him being there with his parents and, you know, and I, and I think I thought that was interesting. I thought the film could have easily gone to something where it was kind of like old word, old world culture, bad new world culture, good. And and I and I thought it, it had a real deft hand in that. I thought the parents were hilarious. Actually, were again, like yeah, I, I again, I, it was a film that I just I laughed a lot, really enjoyed, and I think I really tried to put in my top ten, but again, couldn't just kind of slightly fell short of it. Though I still think my favorite bit, and it has to be when he um, when Ray Romano just looks at him, goes like, "So nine eleven, that- I just wanted to have a conversation with." <laughs> About People. 9-11. And then he goes like, you, you never you never talked to anyone about 9-11? <laughs> yeah. And he just goes, oh, well, I just, what, what, what do you think of 9-11? He goes, oh, it was a terrible tragedy. We lost 13 of our best guys. Yeah, we lost 19 of our best men. <laughs> 19 yeah. of our best guys, yeah, yeah. That, that joke, I laughed so hard. Like, that's my favorite joke of the year. Like, that was so fucking funny. 
Um, you got to see it if you haven't seen it. The Big Sick, it, uh, it, it'll it touch all the feels. And and from a screenwriting perspective, one of the things that often gets brought up too is that there are films that have uh, – and this is just the sort of it's – a, it's a common cliche in Hollywood is that you have second act troubles, right? This is a film that has a perfect second act I think because it deals with the protagonist going on his journey in such a way that it isn't forced. There's nothing fabricated. The drama isn't, isn't overplayed. It's natural and the journey that he goes on to kind of come to that level of self-discovery that allows him to, to make his break into the third act, it was just handled so nicely because that's when he is dealing with her parents. So the, the journey is, is kind of dealing with all those weird cultural familial and personal issues and it's just handled so well so and yeah, and, and i am i i am you know austin you know we, we've brought this up on the podcast i am a great fan of the 90s romantic comedy yes you are and do you know who else is a big fan of the 90s romantic comedy who camille nanjiani <laughs> uh it was i literally once uh, heard him on i think it was an npr podcast where they were just discussing how much he loves 90s romantic comedies amazing uh so uh but um and so and i i feel like there is an element of while you were sleeping in this film of course and i and i feel like i feel like it, it still has to come as we said that sort of there's still an element of that post 9/11 cynicism still within this cuz obviously the the film does the, the film is largely almost in many ways a romantic comedy between uh to pa- between the parents and him, but yeah. I, I think, but I, I think at the same time, there's, it, it, it's nice having a romantic comedy to put to that 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 is troubling my top ten. I agree, I agree. All right, so um, what's your six? So again, kind of on theme here is that that my list for the most part is really fucking depressing. Like it's like <laughs> a lot of really deep depressing movies and this is not that this movie is really really fun and zippy and exciting and it is baby driver oh yeah you loved yourself some baby driver didn't you well i was actually i was rewatching it with my uh with my mom last night um but yeah i mean this movie is kind of like a four like every edgar wright film is kind of a formless wet dream it's just you know it's it's yes it, 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 you know, I, I feel like Edgar Wright is one of those films, filmmakers where you really go, you go to watch the direction, mm. you know, and because not only is it about camera movement and um, and and you know the angles, it's also about just things like transitions. Like he mm. he knows so, how to do transitions better than anybody. And you know, but things like just like really clever sound cues, yeah. and you know, it's just like he is using all the quadrants of the medium at all times. Um, and, you know, and it's interesting because I heard a lot of people were kind of a little bit disappointed in baby driver. Um, and I actually think it's because in this Edgar Wright has kind of taken his foot off the gas a little bit and made a somewhat more mainstream film, mm. like still feels Edgar Wright, but it feels him more playing in the Hollywood system, which I think some people weren't as keen on. But, well, I mean, if I if I can throw my hat in at this point, yeah. I was one of them. I well, I was a uh, little. Are we gonna have our first like confrontational element of this ten this, this top ten list? I I everything that you just said about why people may have been a little disappointed. I I guess I haven't really analyzed the reasons why as in depth as as maybe I could have. But I do know that I left the theater kind of like, eh, like, yes, formalist, wet dream. The the subtlety with which he deals with transitions and audio cues in this film is fantastic. Ansel Elcourt does a great job. Obviously, the supporting cast are great, too. I just, it was kind of, it was good. 
it was good. I didn't think it was great, and I was expecting great because of the hype. And this, again, could be a problem of going in with such high expectations, but I was expecting amazing. And this was actually, I think, right after we had done our Scott Pilgrim episode. So I was like, Scott Pilgrimed out. I was ready to go. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm ready for this. And I went in, and I was kind of like, eh, but it's you know, good. it's But at the same time, you know, he's not dealing with the same type of reality as Scott Pilgrim. It's a, you know, this is a more recognizable real world reality. But also the the thing, too, that really struck me is that this is a film about a British man getting to play with Americana signifiers. Mm. Like he's like this is really about him going to diners being in cars, you know, you know, he, <laughs> yeah. he, he put, puts on the kind of like Ansel Elgort's got a kind of Elvis accent going through the whole thing. Right, it's like, right. this is a film about, uh, you know, a guy who's grown up on American seventies movies, getting to mm. like, you know, flex his muscle and get to like do something about Americana. Yeah. And, you know, and I, and I think, and I, and, and I, I think that's part of what I enjoy about it because I feel mm. like there is that outsider perspective in it that is just having so much fun in the sandbox. Um, and I think that's it. I think, I think in many ways, I don't think it's a particularly deep film. And I'm not totally sure how much I ever think Edgar Wright's films are that deep. I think he's, I think he's really great at tapping into a couple of key themes. Often, usually, the idea of growing up or trying to having to take on responsibility. Mm. But I, I think at the same time, I think his films are often really about kind of surface level visceral enjoyment. And on that level, Baby Driver really, really works for me. And again, yeah. this is don't 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 go into this whole I'm giving some caveat thing for why I think it's good. I'm just explaining why I think it's good. Yeah, yeah. No, and I, I, I and I get that. And it's interesting all the stuff that you said, I actually I would give it all kinds of points for that. You know? And it's it's and here's the thing too, is like so again, it's it's like things like Things that just as uh, as a fan of filmmaking just excite me, you know, so it's like so I watch like the sequence of like them going into the bank where the woman, fr- not the bank, sorry, the post office where the woman shows up and he sort of shakes his head. And the music keeps going up and you see the and you see the the the, you know, like John Hamm and Jamie Foxx and uh, the woman kind of like coming back into the car. And all of these things are kind of happening one after the other and the music keeps going up and then it sort of crescendos and then ends with what I think is one of the best foot chases filmed in years. And and again, and there's just this great joy in the sense that you know everything you're watching is practical. You're not watching like some massive CGI car stunts from the Fast and the Furious. You're watching like real world cars doing real world things. Yeah, I can see that, man. I won't shit on the choice. I just think for me, it wasn't my favorite. But then again, ask me again in five years. I might have a different lens when I see it on Netflix or something. All right. So Austin, what's your number five? I think my number five film is one that you would absolutely hate. But this film to me was absolutely amazing david lowry's a ghost story i um, i i meant to watch it i didn't watch it i don't know that you would love it i think you would find the framing a bit too forced i think you would find um the the long takes there's like an eight minute scene of rooney mara eating a pie i think you would find that way too self-indulgent but i think you'll find bits in it that you'll enjoy um david lowry seems to me like he's really in love with early terrence malick he loves badlands and days of heaven you know so if you've ever seen um his early film which is ain't them bodies saints it 
it resonates a lot with those early Terrence Malick films in terms of contemplation, in terms of um, backlighting, natural light backlighting at like the golden hour. You know, like it's almost like he's like, we're only going to shoot from four o'clock to seven o'clock <laughs> and and it's going to be backlit. You know, um, he loves that idea. He loves that 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 color palette that you get during that time of day. And he uses that a lot. And then, of course, in this film, he uses that weird that weird framing, what is it, like four by three or something like that with rounded edges? And I know a lot of people thought that that was kind of a contrived formal move. And I get that, but I dig that sometimes. I'm okay with a little pretension. I'm okay with a little self-indulgence. Um, uh, the performances, again, are, are, are beautiful. There's not a lot of dialogue. There's a lot of contemplative filming on facial expressions. But I think one of the things I love about it, and there aren't that many cuts, so so there aren't that many scenes, and then there aren't that many cuts within scenes either. And then, of course, there are certain scenes where he does actually use some clever editing. David Lowry was an editor in his uh, – well, he's he also does a lot of editing. He was an editor first before he became a director. Um, and I think one of the things I loved about it was because there were so many long takes and because it's such a contemplative, intimate – portrayal of of loss and time and and the world moving on and leaving you behind and kind of decay and and then hope and love and all of these things that kind of swirl around each other what it allows you to do is it really kind of puts the discomfort and the onus on the viewer to just watch something where you're not being force fed by the violence of the cut that brings a new set of images to you but rather you're just stuck there with Rooney Mara eating a pie and crying after the loss of her partner or something along those lines. And and so I think it was really well handled. Um, I thought that the gimmick of Casey Affleck or whoever the actor was that they had under it, but Casey Affleck under the sheet that's like the ghost sheet, I thought it might be a little cheesy. And it actually really works for me. It didn't take me out at all. Um, I thought it was a really lovely, beautiful, sort of intimate portrayal. And David Lowry is one of my favorite filmmakers. Um, I didn't see Pete's Dragon, but I really want to. Um, but I think that he's he's absolutely fantastic. Um, I mean, I think the I've not seen it, but uh, Bradley's criticism he gave me was he said uh, it feels like a thirty-minute short that's written out too long. Yeah, and I could he said, he said a very good thirty-minute short that feels like it's written out too long. Yeah, and I think the reason that I and I totally get that, and I think the reason that I appreciate the elongation of the short film into the ninety-minute film that it is, because it's still relatively short, but it feels long. It does feel long because it's very slow. I enjoy slow cinema sometimes, and I think it's because, like I said, it's sort of. It sort of reflects. It's almost a mirror reflection back onto you because you're so used to being spoon-fed. I need this and I need that and I need this and I need that. I mean that's why the Marvel movies are so amazing and they're so frenetic is you're constantly being shocked. You know, you're, you're being stimulated. Whereas this doesn't stimulate you in the same way. It actually – it forces you to just be present and to think and it's much more meditative. And I think that's difficult for some viewing audiences and I get that. It's even difficult for me but that's one of the things I enjoy about it. It's like – it's like reading Infinite Jest. I've never read Infinite Jest, but from what my friends say, it's not necessarily enjoyable, but it's worthwhile. And I think that's what I get from this film. Okay, cool. Well, mine is a film that I I don't know may still be on your list. I, I have no clue, but uh, we're back to more darker – or I suppose actually it has a very much more sort of uh, uplifting end to a certain extent. But okay. uh, it is – a film that I think is an experience, and that film is Dunkirk. Okay. Um, it is a film that I 
again, it's very hard for me to necessarily have a completely unbiased feeling towards because it's a film that I think uh, moved me greatly on a personal level mm. um, because I've always kind of been moved by the the story of Dunkirk. Mm. But um, it was a film that I just thought was impeccably made and was just incredibly... I, I loved the structure of it. I loved the way that it, it wasn't some kind of hallmark, um, you know, sort of... Uh, dinner theater kind of uh, overly stuffy version of this that, you know, it was this kind of experiential, really visceral film. And I think, you know, I I think for all the people who want to, you know, sort of like anytime, the problem is anytime Nolan makes a film, I always think it's great. People want to call me a Nolan bro. (laughs) I, I, all I can say is I think the man makes fantastic movies, you know, so I, I can't, I, I, I all I can do is I can hold my hands up and say I think the man makes fantastic movies and I think and Dunkirk is a fantastic movie. Um, but I was I, I, I you know I, there were two films on my list that I had an incredible emotional reaction to and you know basically couldn't speak for about five minutes afterwards and this was one of them. Hmm. Well, I might as well just say that my number four is Dunkirk right now, so we can kind of combine this discussion. Oh, yeah. Well, that's that's convenient, actually. That's actually quite convenient, isn't <laughs> it? It is kind yeah, of convenient, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I agree, man. I, I thought that this was a really fantastic film, and I, too, am a sort of Nolan Homer, I guess. Um, you know, I did a, a three-part series for Wisecrack on the philosophy of Nolan. Only two have been released. The third one will well, it'd be interesting deal with to see if your it's be interesting if your past with Wisecrack also comes up for again in the list. Oh, that's right, that's right. Um, uh, it might people for foreshadowing purposes, and you know, so so you can check that out. The third video will deal with Interstellar and with Dunkirk, but. Yeah, I thought that the thing that was so wonderful about this is that the criticisms that are generally leveled against Nolan, you know, that he's over-expositional, he complicates the stories, he writes poor female characters, um, all to kinds To be fair, there's no good female characters in this one. He did fix well, that one. Exactly. Well, you, you even said it actually on the podcast when we talked about it. You're like, he did fix it. He just eliminated them. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so what he did is he sort of – this is almost like him circumventing all of those criticisms and he made something that was what? An hour and th- – 30 something minutes um it's, yeah it's pretty maybe short a, a, it's, it's really short it moves maybe an hour 40 but it fucking moves you know there's no lagging is, whatsoever it is a uh, 106 minutes okay so it's 106 minutes so i mean it, it's it's, about not, a, it's, it's about under about two hours hour 45 hour 45 it's under two hours which is unheard of yeah. for a nolan film right well, especially Anymore. something this which has prestige melodrama written all over yeah. it you know this is not atonement he hasn't he hasn't gone and made like atonement <laughs> he's you know and th- th- that's not me hating on prestige melodrama like i recently watched remains of the day for the first time thought it was fucking amazing Ooh, but it's yeah. like but it's like but i i don't think that's what nolan is sought to do here and i think mm. that's what i appreciate so much about it is it's he wants you to have this visceral experience of being one of these guys on the beach and just kind of follow them around trying to find their way out. Mm. Yeah. And I, and I think the structure of this film is fascinating. I, I like the way Nolan plays with the structure of film. I mean, I wrote an entire essay on, you know, uh, the contextualization of imagery and Nolan, you know, and Memento was one of the key, you know, text that I used in it. Um, and I think there's something really interesting in the idea of the way he plays with time here and utilizes it in order to better, uh, 
um, to make a more satisfying narrative um, narrative arc for the three sort of perspectives that were given in it. Mm. Agreed. Yeah, I, I, I agreed. The soundtrack too was exquisite. You know the the way that they use the ticking of the watch. Oh yeah. And uh, the, the the what's it called? The scale that just keeps going up and keeps going yeah. up, and it doesn't. I can't remember what it's called right now. But um, yeah, it, it, the the editing, the the cinematography. Um, the acting performances, there was no sort of problem with exposition because it's not a very dialogue-heavy film. Um, the performances I thought were great. I mean, Harry Styles was even good in it. I mean, come on, man. You know, it's... it's I'm sure... I never thought Harry Styles was necessarily a bad actor. I'd never seen him act in anything. So I assume I if he was cast in a Nolan film, then he's probably decent because I don't think Christopher Nolan's going to be like, oh, we need to get that One Direction guy in there for the for, <laughs> for, for, to, to get the 13-year-old girl contingent that we really need to make Dunkirk successful. Plus, I wonder you if know, you could quantify that. Like, how much extra... How many hundreds of thousands of pounds was Harry Styles actually worth by bringing in teenage girls into the seats? Plus, the thing that I just, you know, I really like about this is Nolan said, we're going to make, uh, a, we're going to make, a, I'm going to, I'm going to get a hundred million dollar version film about Dunkirk made, which is this, this, this skirmish in, you know, World War Two, which really just dealt with the British, you know, was a complete failure on, on the face of it. Mm. And, you know, and it, it is a film, it is something that like most Americans have probably never heard of. Yeah, like, I had I had never heard of it. I didn't know about of, the Dunkirk. I mean, something spirit. you grow up with as yeah. something you grow up with in the UK as a big part of the culture, but most Americans have never heard of it. Right. You know, globally, most people have never heard of it, and so I, there's something that I appreciate about the fact that Christopher Nolan can go out there, get his passion project made, and deliver the goods. Because mm. this yeah. film was also successful as well. Yeah, it's probably going to win some Oscars. It's probably Best Picture, you know. So, all right, what's your number I'm not four? sure I think it's going to win Best Picture anymore, but I think it's definitely... Oh, no? What's, no, I think it's... What's it'll surpassed? be nominated. I think, I think Call Me By Your Name looks like it's written in really good stead for that. Interesting. Interesting. Okay, what's your number four? Okay, my number four is one we've already talked about, Wind River. So, <laughs> so we can... Two. That's two. <laughs> we can, yeah. So we can, um, we can move on for that. Um, it, you know, besides just saying, obviously, I think Wind River is fucking fantastic. I think Jeremy Renner should be nominated for Best Actor. Taylor Sheridan should definitely get a, a Best Writing uh, nomination. And yeah, and I, I, as someone who grew up around a lot of Indian reservations, I thought it was a really, really fascinating um, dissection of how the legal system works around. Yeah. In, in the, also, it's just, you know, it's, uh, I, it's, it's always fun to I, I liked seeing Graham Greene in something again. You know, mm. I liked, I liked uh, the guy from Hell or High Water. It's like that thing of like, I like it when you see uh, Native American actors getting work. Yeah, and, and like good roles too, yeah, you yeah. know? Not just like they're playing the stereotypical guy or something like that. But I'm like, also, I'm a fan of, I'm a fan of process as well. So it's like, yeah. I, I like seeing process happen in films. So it's like, so that whole sequence oh, yeah. where they're like, where the dead body is in the morgue and they're having that whole sort of, understand whose jurisdiction it is oh, where yeah. it falls how how you get i that stuff i love which right. sounds weird but i do i again i am always a big fan of anytime a movie busts out some process on me mm. and it's just got some uh, uh, sort sort of more amazing like dude moments again like the one that's standing out in my mind right now is the bit where you know the 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 murder is solved or the crime is solved we'll say 
and then the the people who perpetrated the crime they're all dealt with except for like the one guy and Jeremy Renner does his thing with him and sends him off into the 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 middle of the nothing and he ends up dying and he sits down with the father and the father says you know how did he go out and he just looks at him and he says with a whimper and there's something that's like like man vengeance that just boils up within me and it's like <laughs> I, I do think I do think like I I've, I've said this before I have some kind of weird thing about like dudes in the wilderness dealing with like man stuff. It's yeah, like, yeah. It, it's like, it's like, again, like I rewatched, um, flight of the Phoenix, like the original about like a month ago. And I'm kind of like, there's, it's just this, this, this thing coming. There is something about this. I'm like, yes, yeah, dudes are trapped out somewhere and they've got to like survive. Fuck. Yeah. Let's, um, okay. So, so Austin hit, hit us, hit us with your number three. All right, so my number three is actually probably the best made film, in my opinion, on my list, and it is The Handmaiden. Now, this might be another one of those tweeners again. Well, technically, The Handmaiden was on my list last year. Okay, yeah. Because um, I saw it last year. But it didn't come out in Ireland until early this year. I so, mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's allowed. I'm not going to, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you on it. Um, but this fucking movie, man, is across the board. I just think it is fantastic. I also think there's a really interesting philosophical ideology in there. Now, um, uh, it isn't something that got much attention, but I think there's actually a really interesting like philosophical read of this film too, which really made me enjoy the film so much. And it's this idea of it being a sort of feminist overcoming of both capitalism and the patriarchy. And um, we don't have to go into it too much, but there are well, the I will two say, incidentally, it's Alex's, it was Alex's favorite film last year. Was it? Okay, yeah. And, and it's the sort of overcoming of the idea of what's sometimes called lean-in feminism and then, of course, the patriarchy because you have the guy that uh, is the sort of like master of the house and he wants to control but they want to overcome that. But then there's the guy that wants to come in and make the deal with them and that's kind of like capitalism trying to make a deal with them. Oh, you can you can gain your freedom through accumulation of wealth or something like that which I would uh, kind of like compare to the, the idea of lean-in feminism. But what they end up doing is subverting all of that altogether and it's just the two women – embracing this idea of po positive femininity where it's like overcoming all of it. So ideologically, there's something really interesting going on beyond the fact that it's just beautiful, it's well-acted, it's well-crafted, it's dark, it's it's visceral, it's fucking clever, it's got those amazing twists and turns that he's fucking well, you know known me, for. You know me, Austin, I'm a geek for structure, so when, yes. you know, so this, this is a film where if you are, you are into film structure, this is... It, it's it's just gonna be uh, it's it's like crack to you. It's 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 just wonderful because so many yeah. kind of like so many kind of like reveals and and recontextualization of images and kind of like oh. uh, yeah. And it's just it it it's just that that ah. Oh, and then it's just got that one just really really fucking fantastic twist at one point where I just mm. go like where the entire film turns around and basically replays the entire movie for you, yeah. recontextualizing everything you've just seen yes. and the thing that's great i love it i also love the use of language because um because uh one of the characters is a sort of japanese heiress and the other is a korean maid because they don't because there is the use of both japanese and korean in the film it's really fascinating to see how they use the language to mm. sort of manipulate her and and it's it's interesting too because this film i don't know if you realize this but this film is actually based off of a English novel set yeah, yeah. in set in like Victorian England. It might be right. 
might be a little bit later than that, but it's um, but it was it was funny because I was literally explaining the plot because I'd watched it and I was expl- uh, with Alex and I was explaining the plot to my mother and going like and my mother just goes wait I've read this book and right. it was like is and and I was like I was shocked to find out that this is that this film that this was based off of an English novel and then I of course immediately said well that's fucking racist because things should only be based off the countries they're from and involve <laughs> the people from those countries that's right cultural appropriation how dare you. But no, right, I, I, you know, you know me. I think Park Chan Wook is possibly the greatest living director working today, and I just, I, I, I think he's watching him is just watching a master at work. I agree, a hundred. This is this is, and I, I, I say that last year, my three, I would, my top three films, I kind of felt were interchangeable. Um, Green Room, Hell or High Water, and The Handmaiden were all kind of interchangeable movies. Like any one of them could have been my number one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I really I, went with I, Green Room because it was the one that got the least love out of people. <laughs> Not from me, man. But yeah, um, yeah. I thought uh, I thought Handmaiden is fucking amazing. So, what's your number three? So number three is a film that played this year at Cannes, and uh, I thought was absolutely fantastic. And I have actually seen it popping up on quite a lot of year top ten year end lists. And that is the movie Good Time, starring Robert Pattinson, yeah. and directed by the Safdie brothers. Yeah, it's getting a lot of ma- like a lot of love on uh, on the year end lists I've been seeing. It's like again, it's one of those films that's it's ninety nine minutes. It's just lean and it's got one of those just really good kind of just um, hmm. cr- one crazy night type sort of things. It's it sets up its stakes so quickly and so effectively. Um, uh, Robert Pattinson's brother, uh, it helps him, who's kind of a bit slow, um, helps him in a bank robbery. He ends up getting caught by the police. Robert Pattinson's trying to find the bail bonds money to get him out. And basically the film is essentially him just going around at night trying to find the money, getting into various problems, which only make things worse and keep escalating everything. And yeah, and it is Robin Pattinson is fucking fantastic in it. And I've been flying the flag for Robert Pattinson for years because, mm. again, I appreciate anybody who kind of goes from who kind of like makes his name and say something like Twilight and says, you know what, I'm going to use this credit to try and get good films made. Me too. And that's man. yeah, that's that's what I respect. And dude is clearly a guy who saw Twilight as the as a chance to go and become do make really good things. Of course, you know, he's been in a film that you really dig, uh Child Childhood of a Leader. Yep. Um, you know, he's been in things like Lost City of Z, which I did think was amazing, but I thought was an interesting film. That's you know? actually and getting I, a lot of love on year end lists too. I've and noticed I don't, that a lot. I think I I think I think I, it's a re- I turned it re- off halfway through. I was kinda like eh no, I think it's a really good first two acts with a really underwhelming third that doesn't really quite know how to end, um, which is kind of like – that's kind of my feeling with James – people love James Gray. I mm. I think he puts together really, really handsome films. Um, oftentimes they feel really kind of vacuous to me, but I, yeah. I think but I think they're very handsome-looking movies. Um, and I also think Lost City of Z is hampered by the fact that Charlie Hunnam can't act. No matter how many times people try to give him a chance, he still can't fucking act. I think he's genuinely the worst <laughs> actor who has ever been given the amount of, like, cred and money and uh, success that he has. Because, again, I'll defend Keanu. 
but Charlie Hunnam has never done anything I can defend. Because even like Sons of Anarchy, he is by far the worst thing in that show. And if you put anybody else in that lead, it would be a much better show. But he's sexy as fuck here. <sighs> but also, <laughs> can I just say, he is an Englishman who can't do a convincing English accent. What the fuck is that? Listen, the, he was born in Newcastle. He was he lived from like 5 to 15 in Australia. He's confused, man. And he's Newcastle, so even his English accent is going to be messed up anyway. So he's got that sort of like, you know, weird muddled, I don't know where I'm from, and I don't know. Anyway, I don't know we're, why we're, I'm I, I, We're talking about... <laughs> Charlie Hunnam, we should be talking about Good Time, which is a fucking fantastic movie. Um, I just like the fact that, too, this film commits to the idea that these people are not nice people and just mm. kind of goes goes with it. Like, I, I think actually the interesting thing is people have this idea that you need to have a sympathetic lead. And I don't think that's necessarily true. I think having a lead with purpose is, mm. is I think I think people are involved if you have a lead who has some sort of purpose and design and desire to what they're doing. I don't think that necessarily has to be a sympathetic act that they're going through. Mm. And certainly you can sympathize with the idea that the guy cares about his brother a lot, but he's not a nice person. And the film makes no bones about trying to make you think he's a nice person. And I really, really like that. You know me, I like morally gray universes. Right. So, right. Um, and I think the way this film shoots New York is really beautiful and this really grungy, you know, way. I think this film is really has a really cool aesthetic without overdoing it. I think it's indie without becoming silly and over the top. I think it just manages to run all of these grounds really, really well without sort of overplaying its hand. And it's interesting because I've never watched anything else by these guys. I know. Um, heaven knows what I I haven't seen, but um, Bradley watched it. Said it's everything that you. It's it's exactly what you would generally think of as hateable indie cinema. That's really obnoxious, <laughs> you know. Um, and so I, I don't know, but they these guys they hit something just perfect with me mm. on this. And I'm also fascinated that apparently they're going to remake Forty Eight Hours. Interesting. Okay. Yes, which is a weird one, but uh, there you go. Anyway, I think Good Time is great. I think you should watch it because it's fucking fantastic. And yeah. Cool. Cool, cool. Number two. All right. So my number two film is for me, and it was tough, man. I mean, number one and number two are interchangeable entirely. This, This might be my favorite film of the year. Whereas I think my number one film is the, for me, that had the biggest impact, if that makes sense. This film that is my number two was like a religious experience for me when I saw it. And it is The Red Turtle. Um, uh, did you get to see it in cinema? I haven't seen The Red Turtle, no. You still haven't seen it? Okay. No. Um, I, I mean, I love all of Studio Ghibli films. I, I, will say, I will say this. I'm not the world's biggest studio ghibli guy like i don't think any i've never disliked anything they've done but i i don't necessarily it doesn't excite me so it's like i've seen spirited away i've seen princess mononoke they were both really really good impeccably made i i i'm not a big animation guy well the weird thing is the spirited away gets so much love now we need to make a difference too this is not a miyazaki film 
right? Um, this is a Ghibli film, so it's got some of the magic and the animation from Ghibli films, but it's not actually a Miyazaki film. So some of the themes are are similar, but it's a different execution. Although, to be completely honest, I feel like if you told somebody this is a Miyazaki film, I'm not even sure they would be able to really like argue on it. They'd be like, oh, is it? Okay. Um, but it is It is a little bit different. Um, but I actually think Spirited Away gets so much love, and it's it's not even in my top three of my favorite Miyazaki films. You know what? Films. It's because it was the breakout one. It's the one that yeah. everyone's seen. Yeah, I, it must be. It's the be. one that won the Oscar for Best Animated Film. Yeah, okay, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think uh, My Neighbor Totoro is better. I think that uh, Castle in the Sky is fun. Um, I think Princess Mononoke is better. And for me, my favorite film is The Wind Rises of of his films. So, but anyway. Wasn't that one, was that the one that people were a little bit like, oh, this is a little bit problematic because it's essentially about a dude who's building uh, planes that are going to go bomb Pearl Harbor. But that's exactly the point. That's a, that's literally one of the, the existential crises that he explores in the film, which is why I think the film is so profound. Oh, okay. It's because the, the main character is aware of the fact that he's building these things that are going to become weapons, but nevertheless, he's creating them for a different reason. So then do you still create? And, oh, I think it's a brilliant film on existential crisis. But that's not the film we're talking about here at number two. Number two is The Red Turtle. And it is a fantastic, and I mean that in the literal sense, it is a fantasy. It is a fantastic fantasy. It is an exploration of the imagination, of connection with nature, um, of of struggle, of of beauty, of of life, and of of, of wonder. And... You know, the animation is simple, but there's something so powerful about this film because there's really no dialogue whatsoever. There are like two words that are said throughout the entire film, but there's really nothing, nothing to even notice. And I remember sitting there in the theater and it literally, you were talking about how you had a couple of experiences of of films this year that kind of just left you to, that you needed to sit and contemplate afterwards. And for me, this was one of those films. And I remember walking out of IFI here in Dublin and, and walking back to uh, back to my place. And it was almost like I had just gone through um, some sort of conversion experience. And um, it was that profound because it was just so wonderful and, and so childlike. And, um, and to be able to experience that as, you know, as in an age of political cynicism, I think also maybe had a greater impact on me. I just thought it was absolutely fantastic. So if you haven't seen it, I would say go see it. I don't think seeing it out of the theater is going to diminish your experience of it whatsoever. If you can see it on your laptop, fucking get it. Uh, absolutely amazing movie. When it was it was nominated for best pick for best animated film last year, and. Um, Bradley, uh, it was actually, it was, I'm pretty sure it was in Bradley's top 10 list last year. So it's a, okay. uh, it's a film that people, you know, have been raving about for a very long time. So again, it's like, it was one I, I should watch. Maybe at some point I will. Um, <laughs> well, did just, you like, like, did you like, but it's like, like, my it's like and a... I know, I know, I know. Here's the thing. It's, it's the sort of film that when I sit down and watch it, I will go like, I am such an asshole for not just having sat down and watched this because it's fucking fantastic. <laughs> but all the things that you say are things that make me kind of roll my eyes a bit and go, okay. But you, but you also have to remember too, I dissect or, or let's say not dissect. I um, – because I do. But, uh, but more than that, I ingest films differently than you. And, and for me, 
the the things that I'm going to love are going to be different from you, different from Bradley. Um, yeah, we'll have areas of crossover, of course, but also at the same time, the things that really get me, the things that really hit me in the heart are oftentimes a little bit askew from yours. And so the things that really got me with the Red Turtle are, yeah, of course, the the fantasy and the imagination and and storyline and things like that. But it's 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 much more about like the philosophical resonance that I can that I can sit there and and I can contemplate and meditate when I'm experiencing these movies. And that's how I. I partake of the movie experience. Hey, well, okay. I mean, I, I think it's interesting because I think, you know, for our number two, we've both gone with um, animal-themed uh, themed films. So my number two can most aptly be, upped, be, be summed up in the tagline for this movie, Small Bear, Big Trouble. It is Paddington <laughs> 2. Which is, I, I, you know, it's, it's interesting how many people that I have to sort of explain to where they're kind of like, oh, that's just a dumb kids movie, right? And I'm like, no, 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 this is the genuinely really, really fantastic movies. Like Padding, the first Paddington was, I think, number three in my top ten. And so Paddington 2 has managed to move up a spot. Wow. And I just, I, I went to see this film on my birthday. And it was just, and like, basically it had been a really bad couple of hours leading up to that. And I was kind of like, oh, do I really want to see, is this going to be ruined by my mood and everything? And you know what? I just sat down and just all, all cynicism, all (laughs) anger, all frustration was just washed away in the face of just this wonderful, earnest character. And the thing that I love about Paddington (laughs) is that Paddington is a character who's, earnestness is in no way trite it feels honest and so he's what i love is that the entire film is basically about this earnest character butting up against a cynical world and rather than him becoming cynical he changes the world and Mm -hmm. and it's it's just it it's just it's it's wonderful and i and you know there's at the same time though they are impeccably made films like you know they have these sequences of kind of great slapstick humor that are right out of Keaton or Chaplin, you know, they're just wonderfully visually executed. And, Mm. and I just, and I just think this movie earns every moment of sweetness in it without ever being saccharine or playing it too harshly. And I think it's also, it's a really, really great cast that they've assembled. You know, I think Hugh Bonneville is absolutely perfect. Sally Hawkins is wonderful, Mm. you know, and I'm, you know, Sally Hawkins, who is an actress who I think everyone you know, in the world would agree is, is a, is, is a wonderful actress here imbues every element of serious acting weight to playing mm. a, a hippy dippy, you know, upper middle class English woman that she does to, you know, I'm, I'm sure she does to, you know, the shape of water. And then, you know, you've got, you know, Hugh Grant in an absolutely wonderful hmm. villain role here. And then I, I genuinely think, I don't think Hugh Grant's been this good in a very, very long time. And then also just, you know, Brendan Gleeson as Knuckles, the head of the prison kitchen, is just fucking wonderful as well. So it's just <laughs> it, it's just in every way, this film is just moment to moment, just a wonderful joy to behold. And I just absolutely fucking adored this movie. And we watched Paddington with my family, the first one, at Christmas. And again, it is just a film that you are just bowled away by it's just wondrous kind of just Mm. humor, but also just 
worldview. Like you just you want the world to be the world of Paddington. Mm, I like those kinds of movies, and and to my shame, I've never seen either. So I didn't I see you the said first the other one. day you'd seen Paddington. No, I didn't see the original. Um, I, I've seen bits of it, but I didn't see – I mean it was one of those things where it was like I don't count it when it's on in the background sort of thing. Like I uh, I have shitloads of credits on Amazon, so that's – I kind of rent a shitload of movies. But I had it on, but I – yeah, I, I, I dig the idea of the sentimentality and things like that. But um, I need to actually like properly sit down and, and enjoy it because it just kind of – I don't know. I, I feel like I'm missing out on on this world of of uh, this fantastic world that you uh, rave about. So I need to kind of be in a different zone. This fantastic world of a talking bear who loves marmalade sandwiches. Yeah, exactly. And see, see, that's the thing is like I get I get told all the time that you know that people think I'm a cynic or they think I'm I'm too uh, uh, you know that I just have dark tastes and things. But actually, you know. I think there's something to be said about earnestness that is earned and well done rather than just sort of treacly sweetness that is there purely as uh, that has no nutritional value to it. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I agree, man. I agree. And if we live in a world of sort of just rampant cynicism, it is nice every once in a while to find genuine sentimentality because and, and the thing you know, that's actually really not beautiful, everything needs to be ironic and, and cynical. <laughs> Well, and the thing that's really beautiful about the first Paddington is, is it works so wonderfully as a sort of metaphor for immigration. You know, mm. Paddington is a bear from deepest, darkest Peru whose um, home is destroyed by uh, a sort of freak flood. Um, his um, uncle um, is uh, killed and his um, aunt has to go to the home for retired bears. Um, so... <laughs> You know, and he shows up and he shows up in London in this sort of um, parallel with uh, what happened with actual refugees based off what actually happened to real refugee children with a tag saying, please look after this bear, you know, and the way that the film then really uses that to work as a kind of metaphor for um, the immigrant uh, for the immigrant experience in London and, you know, and has very, very deliberately has Peter Capaldi as this sort of nosy neighbor who's like, oh, we don't like these types. If you if you allow them, you know, and he, he says things like, oh, they'll be playing their jungle music at all all hours. And of course, you know, if, you, if you're a kid, you're just like, oh, because bears live in like the Peruvian jungle. But if you're like an adult, you get, oh, I see what they're doing there. Right, right. And, you know, and the film doesn't have to be that. It could have just be this cheap, shitty cash-in with this sort of recognizable characters they've done with a million kids' properties. But the fact that these are so impeccably made, I, I just think Paul King is one of the most genius choices that has ever been married. It's such a perfect director of uh, perfect marriage of director and material that I, I, I don't, I honestly don't know what they'll do um, when he decides to move on to other things because they are, it, it, it's just wonderful. Hmm. Yeah, I know. I, uh, I wonder if they'll run out of source material. Like, you know, they're going to make a third one now, right? They have to. Of course. But, so uh, well, it's only, it's, it's they keep only it just opening. Well, the problem is too, it's only just opening in the States as of January 12th. And there's been a lot of concern because of the fact that the Weinstein company is what it's released through in the United States. It's not released through the Weinstein company here, but it's like that it's going to be tainted by that. Um, and people are going to be, well, I'm not going to want to take my kids to something that was produced by the Weinstein company. Oh no. Ah, uh, fuck. Well, 
We shall see, shan't we? But Paddington is the greatest thing ever, so go what, fucking watch it. So Paddington 2 is the one that's actually obviously on my list, though. <laughs> All right, so my number one Wait, film. wait, wait, wait. Just, just before we do the number ones, are there any kind of honorable mentions that you want to throw in there? Anything that you didn't, didn't make your list? Yeah, um, so The Other Side of Hope was a Finnish film. I talked about it. I reviewed it on, on, the, on the podcast, and I didn't give it, like, the most stellar reviews, but I think it's a really interesting film. I think it was kind of, kind of an important film that actually also deals with the immigration crisis. Um, I think that was a really interesting one. I think people should check that out. Um, and, uh, yeah, I guess that would, that would be the only honorable mention that, that didn't quite make it, but that I kind of considered putting it into my 10, but it would have been like a big gap between nine and 10 if I did put that into 10. Cause I didn't love the movie as much as the rest of the top, like nine. Whereas I feel like they're so close together. The, the actual order kind of shifted around so many times and could have been shifted even further. So, but yeah. What about you? What are your honorable I, mentions? I had a lot that were sort of vying to just sort of just try and scrape in at number 10. And Brawl and Cell Block 99 ended up winning that one. But um, uh, American Made, which I really, really enjoyed. Yeah, you did, um, yeah. Logan Lucky would be another one. Uh, Detroit. Uh, the Big Sick was, of course, one. Uh, right. Get Out was one because again yeah. i i kind of almost felt again i kind of felt like i would be putting get out in the <coughs> i felt like i'd be putting get out in there for the sake of itself rather than right. you know and then the other one that really came very very close to my top 10 and this is not in any way trolling star wars the last jedi <laughs> yeah i mean i i thought i thought that you would have uh get out in the big sick uh, at least one of them. That's why I said we had two two crossovers. I thought we'd have maybe three, and um, uh, at least. And I thought for sure the big sick was going to be in there. And then I thought maybe Get Out. And then I thought maybe like Silence would have been there as well. But I didn't realize that you kind of like disqualified it uh, for for your reasons. I think so, I think the problem was I couldn't. The problem was end of the day is the only thing the three films that I could have potentially lost from the bot were Jawbone, Lady Macbeth, and Brawl and Cell Block 99. Like, I could have possibly exchanged a few of this. And I think, especially because all of them were smaller films, it made it very hard for me to feel like I wanted to move those because I kind of felt yeah. like, you know, I, because they were all very, very pleasant. Well, I not maybe not Brawl and Cell Block 99, but they were very pleasant surprises. And they were okay. like, and I, I had such a fun experience of discovering them that it was kind of like I th that was a kind of enjoyment factor that I, I couldn't and you know and these are these are I don't classify these as the 10 best films of the year I classify these as my 10 favorite films of the year sure you sure, know sure because yeah. I don't think I don't I, I don't really buy the idea of trying to say a film is good in a vacuum it's 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 always coming from some kind of personal viewpoint of course of yeah. course no I'm with you so, so those are my those are my honorable mentions. So, Austin, do you want to reveal what we will be doing? Um, what you know, because we're doing a full episode on right. our two favorite films of the year. So, reveal what your favorite film of the year is. My favorite film of the year, top film of the year, best film of the year, whatever the fuck you want to categorize it as, is Bright by David Ayer. I no, love I'm just Bright. kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I actually really um, enjoyed Bright. I'm not going to lie. It's like, <laughs> it was like, I watched, I just stuck it on in the morning on the 27th. They're like, hey, Bright's available. I was like, oh, fuck it. I'll stick it on. Watch the whole thing. And I was like, you know, this was, this was bad. I was kind of into it. 
Oh, God. Okay, uh, my number one film is Mother by Darren Aronofsky. Um, it is a polarizing film. Uh, I get it. Anyone who criticizes it for all the various reasons that they criticize it We're going to have for, some mad discussions on this. I get it. That's cool with me. But like you said just a minute ago, that that every every notch in this top ten is because of a relation to our personal ingestion of the content itself and mother to me is one of the most intriguing and conceptually interesting films that i have ever seen in my entire life and i think that there's something so profound i'm really interested in the subversion of traditional particularly religious narratives cultural narratives political narratives historical narratives as well but because of my conversion into and then my conversion out of Christianity, any film that explores biblical themes to me in a way that is quite subversive or that circumvents traditional dogmatic narratives is going to be something that's automatically going to pique my interest. And this film does it in such a way that I think that there's a way to like intertextually um, examine what's going on on screen with these other sort of philosophical and and theoretical ideas. And to me, that's what makes this film so impactful. I didn't watch a single movie this year that I talked about afterwards more than Mother. And I talked about it with colleagues at work. I talked about it with friends. Um, I did a podcast episode with Wisecrack. I have talked about this film so much. And because it's so conceptually and, and intellectually interesting to me, I have to put it at the number one because it has so much import to me. And, and now you get to talk about it with a Philistine like me. Yeah, well, you said something that was so interesting. You said that when you saw it, you were like, um, eh. And then you kind of walked away from it and you were like, Jesus, that was the most pretentious piece of shit ever. And then you were like, well, maybe it was actually meaty and really brilliant. And so I think that that, that sort of ambiguity is something that I find so fascinating. Like, where are you now months after having seen it? Well, you'll find out on the next episode, won't you? Um, <laughs> So um, my favorite film of the year is – because I think it's really interesting because I think we have ended up with two films that are so us in every kind of a way. Like our yeah. – I feel like you could sum up our dynamic, our kind of the way that we don't necessarily match up so quintessentially perfect in our film choices because <laughs> I think they represent also so many of the things that are built to kind of work and almost kind of like, you know, th that we're in the bag for. Um, and I, I, th it is a film that I was an absolute wreck after I couldn't speak for five minutes. It was just like, <laughs> it destroyed me. And then I, and played to so many, uh, cultural touchstones and things that I love. And, 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 you know, it was a film that came out in March and has been basically sitting at my top 10 for almost the entire year. And I've, um, and I, I kind of started to worry, have I just anointed it as like my number one and I've not bothered to, because I've, I've noticed actually that there's a weird trend of like, oftentimes my number one ends up being films that come out earlier in the year. So I kind of wondered if it was a thing that like, it gets mm -hmm. into that top spot and then I, and then I make it un you know, I, I make that spot unattainable. I make it like mm -hmm. it's this thing of that you, that, that it can't be touched because I built it up so much in my mind. So, and then, so I was so happy when I watched it last night. I still teared up. I still got emotional as fuck. And I still thought, you know, yes, this is my number one film of the year. And that is the movie Logan. 
<laughs> yeah, man. Um, I'm excited to talk about this with you because we've talked about it as well, but we haven't really done like a full on dissection of the movie no. together. So that'll be nice. And it's interesting because, again, this is another one that you were a researcher on a Wisecrack video for. Yeah. And uh, you have to get the hat tip because you were the yeah. one that pointed me to that book, Six Guns in Society. So yeah, which of course, uh, which of course is funny because then when I I um I watched that wisecrack uh, video, it was me getting a lot of the points of my uh, of uh, of essays I wrote in university parroted back to me. <laughs> well, it's funny too because you didn't know that I I didn't know was... it was wisecrack, and I sent you the video going, "Hey, Austin, that thing you were asking me about, here's, yeah, yeah, here's a really good video which will explain <laughs> it to you." <laughs> I know, I know. Anyway, uh, so that is our podcast for, well, not next week. It'll be coming out pretty close in succession. Uh, It'll be a little bit down to how quickly I can get it edited. But um, our next episode will be a double bill of our number one films, Mother and Logan. I think a double bill that we can agree will only ever happen on this podcast. Absolutely. Okay, so in the meantime, please like and subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, check out the website, idigthismovie.com. You can check me out at kiersiewert.com. Check out my Instagram. I have a phone now again, so can actually yeah, post yeah. on Instagram again. Um, at uh, Breaking Point Flicks. And Austin, what's going on with you? Hit me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. All right, so join us next next episode for Logan and Mother. Peace. <laughs>